listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. weeks now we've been in the gospel of Luke and um, our, our goal is not just to know more about the gospel of Luke but to see how the gospel of Luke points us to Jesus Christ so that we can know him and so we're talking about what Luke is saying to Theophilus and we're also trying to ask ourselves what is scripture saying to us today as we get to listen in in Luke and Theophilus' conversation under the inspiration and power of the Holy Spirit. We um, have gone up to chapter 11, and we're going to begin this morning in verse number 29 of Luke chapter 11. But just to go back and for a second capture where we've been Jesus came, we saw his birth, we saw some things about the details of his life, we see the beginning of his earthly ministry, and for 18 months Jesus is traveling around um, proclaiming the kingdom, healing the sick, casting out demons. But when we come to chapter 9 and verse number 51, we see a shift in the gospel of Luke. Jesus um, goes from traveling in one spe- or several areas to now setting his face to go to Jerusalem. So the first 18 months, we see Jesus proclaiming the kingdom, doing the work that he will do. The, the second 18 months of his ministry, the last half of his ministry, we see him sending out the 12 and them proclaiming the kingdom, them healing the sick, them casting out demons. We see Jesus sending out the 70. He's preparing them as they move forward for the future without him. But we also see this uptick in this, this um, conversation and confrontation with the Pharisees. So as Jesus moves to Jerusalem, he's going to have enough conversations with them, and they're going to get so angry with him that by the time he gets there, it's going to result in his crucifixion. And so that's where we are as we begin in Luke chapter 11 and verse number 29, going through verse number 54. Last week, we were able to begin a conversation, um, uh, and we left in the middle of it. Jesus exposed the anger and bitterness of the heart of the Pharisees. They looked at a man that uh, could not hear, and he legitimately couldn't hear. Nobody questioned that. They looked at Jesus heal that man. Nobody questioned the legitimate healing of the legitimately deaf individual. But the thing that they did is rather than seeing Jesus as the Son of God and seeing that Jesus, like Nicodemus, saw him in John chapter 3 and verse number 2, when Nicodemus said, only one sent from God can do what you do, the Pharisees are so incensed and so angry and so desirous of discrediting Jesus Christ that they said, he did these things, but he did it by the power of Beelzebul. He did it by the power of Satan. He did it by the prince of Demons, And we saw in the text last week, Jesus shared a couple of illustrations. He shared the illustration of the strong man and the stronger man. We see the gospel all wrapped up in that. Satan is powerful, but Jesus is more powerful than Satan. And then we also saw another illustration where Jesus basically talks about the, the, the demonic spirits leaving a man. The man is empty. He doesn't have the spirit. And the demons are looking for somewhere else to go. So they come back and they fill that man with seven more Demons And Jesus is addressing the issue of, of moral reformation without heart transformation. And the conclusion last week was this. Moral transformation without, without heart transformation is, according to the text, simply high-class demon possession. And then sandwiched in all of that was verse number 23 of Luke chapter 11. He that is not with me is against me. He that gathers not with me scatters. So Jesus just threw down the gauntlet. It's it's as clear as clear can be. When Jesus makes that statement in Luke chapter 11 and verse number 23, he establishes himself as the center of humanity, as the center of human history, and as the center of salvation history. And so that leads us up to verse number 23. 
9 as the saga continues, as the conversation continues. And Jesus is surprisingly very clear, mincing no words, and also very relentless in addressing the Pharisees. And so I want to look at Luke 11, verse 29, begin reading there. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The first thing I want you to see as we look at this first section, and I'm going to break the text down into three sections this morning. The first thing I want you to see is um, responding to proclamation, responding to proclamation. They've heard Jesus proclaim the kingdom. They've seen Jesus perform miracles. They've seen Jesus cast out demons, but they said, Jesus, you are casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. They saw what Jesus did but didn't recognize him for who he was. So in looking at the text, there are these people uh, asking for a sign. They're saying, we need a sign. We need more proof. We need assurances before we can be sure. I I want you to think about that for a minute because maybe you're here and maybe you're looking for a sign. Maybe you're here and you don't believe and you need more proof. Maybe you're here and you need more evidence. Maybe you know people that need more evidence. I want you to think about that very thing as we begin to enter into this text. When you ask God to prove something to you, when you ask infinite God to prove something to a finite human being, you essentially put down biblical revelation. You say the Bible is inadequate. You put down the fact of the incarnation. You put down the undeniable reality of creation and created order and human existence and history. The height of human arrogance is for human beings to look at God and all that he's done and all that he said and to say, in light of that, nope, that's not enough. That's not enough. I need more. I need, I need for someone that is as intellectual and astute and knowledgeable as me to give me more evidence. My critical thinking and enlightened status need more. Show me a sign. Here's what you need to realize. Here's, here's what we need to realize. I'll put we there. I don't want to be rude. Here's what we need to realize in our idiocy disguised as superior logic and intellect because that's what that is when you look at when you look at jesus christ standing in front of you when you look at all that god has created and you say you need to show me more that is idiocy that is lunacy disguised as superior logic and intellect think about that for a minute before you go and question god again you are saying that the one who makes your heart beat, you are saying that the one who makes your lungs inhale, you are saying to the one who makes the neurons fire and send coordinated and comprehensible codes and messages in your brain, to the one who makes all of your organs function in symphonic precision, who makes your mind think and your ears hear and your eyes see, you're saying to the one who points every tree toward him in outstretched glory, who awakens the dawn with the radiance of the sun and the planets in their unified declaration of his glory who makes the sun in clockwork precision rise and fall and then he lights up the night sky with lights that are set on a grid in the heavens that are beyond our ability to see to comprehend or imagine who by the way gave us 66 books written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years that fit together in perfect literary precision. 
He lets us experience marriage and birth and family and relationships and death. He lets our eyes see music. He lets our ears see beauty. He, he lets our ears hear music and our eyes see beauty. And our taste buds awaken to the array of dietary treasures. And then we have the sheer arrogance to say, hmm, I think I just don't believe in him. To call God into question as though we know. As though, hey, we're solid. As though we can discern. As though we can ascertain. As though we can determine. In our independence and in our intelligence, we can demand more evidence. Give me a sign and I might believe. That's not a sign of heightened intelligence. That's a sign of sheer ignorance. He has already done so much. But the text then goes on to tell us these people are looking for a sign. This is an evil generation. No sign is going to be given to them except the sign of Jonah. And um, I think in um, Matthew 23, the sign of Jonah is elaborated upon and he doesn't take the time here um, in Luke. Luke doesn't take the time to write about it as much as Matthew did. Matthew was in the belly of the whale for three days and that is the sign of Jonah uh, which is pointing essentially to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and lived the life that we were supposed to live. He lived like we were created to live. He lived a life of perfect holiness. He fulfilled all righteousness and the, then Jesus Christ died the death because of our sin and the fall that we deserve to die. And he bore our sin. He paid our sin debt. And then Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave. Jesus said, you see what Jonah did? I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to be in the belly of the earth for three days. And I'm going to be raised victorious over sin. And you will know that God has done a great work. The sign of Jonah is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see that in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 41. But I think what he's getting at um, as we look at the greater context of just this brief passage is, is this. He's talking about a message that was proclaimed and some people accepted it and some people didn't. In, in this text, what Luke is is emphasizing is that there were people who were not Jesus, who were lesser than Jesus, who pointed to Jesus, who proclaimed a message, and the people that they proclaimed their message to heard their message. But then Jesus comes and he goes not to the pagan Ninevites and not to the Gentile queen of Sheba, but Jesus comes and he goes to the, the, his very own people. And they say, we don't want to hear his message. This is Beelzebub. This is, this, is, this is Satan. So essentially he's saying in the text, I sent Jonah to Nineveh to proclaim good news to ignorant, idol-worshiping pagans. We see that in Jonah chapter 3 and verse number 4. And the whole city repented. There was, there was this city-wide revival. Jonah, a rebellious, prodigal prophet with a bad attitude went to a people that he hated, and in contempt he proclaimed hope to a pagan, atheistic, godless, sin-infested city, and they believed. And they believed. And then he tells us of the Queen of Sheba. The Queen of Sheba was in, some folks would say, in Arabia and Yemen, uh, 1,400 miles from Jerusalem. Over several weeks she and her entourage traveled all the way from there because she had heard about the wisdom of Solomon and she wanted to go and see if it was true. And so she spent all of this time with Solomon. She heard all of the wisdom of Solomon and she said, I had heard some things about Solomon, when I, but when I went there and saw Solomon, she said, they could not halfway describe the reality of what I experienced when I sat at the feet of Solomon and listened to his wisdom and asked him a plethora of questions. He answered them all with great precision and skill. So here is this Gentile queen. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. But Jesus minces no words. He said, you need to understand that while Nineveh listened to Jonah and the queen of Sheba, the Gentile queen of Sheba, listened to Solomon, 
there is one that is greater than Jonah standing in front of you, and there is one that is greater than Solomon standing in front of you. In fact, the one that Jonah pointed to is standing in front of you, and the one that Solomon pointed to is standing in front of you. Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. Unfortunately, we're not much different. Jonah's over here. Let's go hear him. How sensational that was. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, is doing a tour. Let's get tickets. Let's go listen. Let's go to the stadium. There's one that is greater, and his name is Jesus Christ. The one that Jonah and Solomon pointed to is standing in front of you. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's proclaiming the kingdom. He has fulfilled all of the prophecies He's doing what only God could do. He's speaking like no one you have ever heard speak. And the very Son of God became flesh to to bring you to God, to put God in front of you. And here is the deal. As Jesus addresses the Jewish people, he says, you are so enlightened. You have memorized the Torah. You follow all the ceremonies. And in your enlightenment and in your wokeness, you have the audacity to say that Jesus is Satan, that he is the son of Satan. Give us another sign. God's people couldn't hear. God's people couldn't see. God's people didn't get it. God's people with God's prophet who gave us God's word couldn't see Jesus for who he was. And it wasn't because they didn't perform well enough, and that's what we've reduced religion to. And it wasn't because they didn't dress the right way, because they did all of that. They performed profoundly well. They, 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 they dressed and every stitch was starched, and every uh, piece of clothing that they needed to have on was, was placed perfectly. And when they walked out into the crowds, everybody was so impressed. They performed well, and they looked well. But the problem was their hearts were bad. They didn't see, they didn't hear, not because there was anything wrong with Jesus. They didn't see and they didn't hear because their hearts were evil. They were impeccable externally, but they were contaminated and as corrupt as could be internally. So when the word was proclaimed... And it was proclaimed to Nineveh, and it was proclaimed to the queen of Sheba. They heard it. But when Jesus came and proclaimed the kingdom to the very people that he birthed to bring humanity, the Messiah, they didn't hear it. How are you responding to the word of God? We read it. We know it. We memorize it. But is the proclamation of Jesus Christ bringing life? I love love back in in Luke chapter 4 and verse number 18. Listen to this. This is is what happens. And and he's he's quoting, Jesus is quoting Isaiah. And it's a a text that essentially speaks of the Messiah when he comes. He said, the spirit of of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is the message that he's proclaiming to the Jewish people. He's proclaiming good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When you hear the word of God, is it a burden? When you hear the word of God, is is it fuel for your performance? When you hear the word of God, is it fuel for your appearance? Or when you hear the word of God, does it wreck your heart? Does it challenge your heart? Does it change your heart? Does it comfort your, your heart? Are you transformed on the inside? How are you responding to God's word? Is it bringing life? Is it bringing freedom? Is it releasing you from captivity? You see, the key is not your intellect. The key is not the retention of information. The key is not your disciplined performance. The key is your heart. Jesus is speaking. How are you responding in your heart? 
Our rejection of the proclamation of Jesus Christ, and the text bears this out at the end. He said, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Noah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Our rejection of the proclamation of Jesus Christ will be the basis of eternal judgment and damnation. Jesus is calling us to himself. He's calling us to life and light. He's calling us to relationship and out of ritual. He's calling us to rest and out of being run ragged by our sin and by our religion. So hear his proclamation this morning, responding to proclamation. Secondly, we see in the text, beginning in verse 33, responding to illumination, responding to light. Look at verse 33, if you will. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its ray gives you light. Responding to proclamation, when you hear God's word proclaimed, is it reaching and changing and transforming your interior world, your heart? That's critical. But secondly, when Jesus comes, do you see him for who he is? This text is telling us that Jesus Christ is the light. They're saying, show us more evidence. Jesus is saying, there is no more evidence. This is the ultimate evidence. All the evidence that you need has been put by God upon the light stand, lamp stand. The light was not in the basement. The light is not put under a shade. The light is not put under a bushel. It isn't veiled. It isn't hidden. It isn't in a vault. The light is readily available for all to see. One writer said the problem is not a lack of light, it's a lack of sight. That's what the text is saying. If you're doubting, if you're wondering, if you're struggling, it could be that the problem isn't with Jesus. It could be that the problem is with your heart. It could be that the problem is with the the capacity of your heart to see the light that has been revealed Jesus is the light. And so, so several things from this section in, in the text. Number one, Jesus, Jesus is the light. And I just want to uh, go back and, and, and capture some thoughts from other passages of Scripture. I think they're pertinent to us understanding without just coming this morning and saying, oh, yeah, great, that's a great fact. Memorize that. Jesus is the light. Look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. This is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. So here's this proclamation, but secondly, we're going to see this illumination that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Luke and John are saying the same thing. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So you can, you can say Jesus is the light all day long. And you can say that you're walking in the light all day long. But if you're truly not practically walking in the light and in fellowship with Jesus Christ, then you are a liar. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light. So it's not a matter of saying, who is Jesus? I got the answer. Jesus is the light. Good. You're okay. You got the answer. No. You, you, you fellowship with Christ and you walk in the light. It becomes something that's very practical. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light because we're connected to him, because our hearts have been transformed, because we're in relationship with him, we have fellowship with one another. If we're in fellowship with Jesus Christ, who is the light, then we are in fellowship with other believers. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. When the light shines, the light shows us the radiance of Jesus Christ. But when the light shines, the light shows us our sin. And we're coming together as the light is shining on us. And we're in fellowship together, not in veiled darkness, but where we are fully exposed in our sin, in our brokenness. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you're in the light, you're going to see that you have sin. If, if, you, if, if you would say, I don't have sin, it, it is because there's a problem with your heart, number one. But number two, you are not walking in the light. You are not walking in the light. You're looking for a corner. You're looking for darkness. You love the darkness. Men love darkness rather than light because they want to conceal their sin. But when we know Christ and we see his radiance and we come into the light and we are in fellowship with him, there is the beauty of his finished work in freeing us from sin. But we're constantly aware of who we were and the work that he has done and the freedom that is now ours. And we come together with other people in community, not on the basis of living in the shadows, but on the basis of walking in the light. Therefore, for walking in the light, it's, it's absolutely idiotic to say, I don't have sin. If we say that we have no sin, there is no light. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word, his proclamation, his illumination is absolutely not in us. Jesus Christ is the light. He, according to 1 Timothy 6.11, dwells in unapproachable light. And then John speaks of Jesus being the light on many different occasions. And I just want to reference a few of those in John chapter 9. Excuse me, John chapter 1 and verse number 9. It says this, listen, listen to this. He says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. The true light, the one that is the true light, no other source of light. John chapter 3 and verse number 19. The text says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Could it be that when Jesus comes and says, I am the light and I'm on the light stand, but you can't see me. Could it be that we love our sin and we love darkness? And that's why we have to live in denial of Jesus Christ. Could it be that sin has so gripped our heart and we're just so addicted to it and, and in love with it that the, 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 the thought of living without our sin, quite frankly, becomes unbearable. Also in... Um, John chapter 8 and verse number 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of life. Jesus is the light. John chapter 9 and verse number 5. Again, Jesus is the light. He's, he's just, he says it over. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 6. Um, I, I, love, I love this verse, and it, it speaks to how we are interacting with and transformed by the light. In chapter 4 and verse number 6, it says, um, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts. So that's, that's, that's the key. It's light shining in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. The glory of God in the face of Jesus. So Jesus Christ is the light out in the open for all to see. He's saying you have more light than Nineveh had. You have more light than the queen of Sheba had. We don't see light. We don't see Jesus for who he really is. Therefore, he must not be who he says he is. The light is perfect. It is inherently unhindered. It is obvious. It is undeniable. So if there is light and I can't see it, my first reaction should not be to blame the light, but to check my eyes. I wanted to listen to a song while I was getting dressed this morning. And there's this little round tubular thing sitting on my dresser, and I can tell it what to do, and it does it. And so I said, Siri, play Jesus, what a Savior. Nothing. 
Went over, pushed the button. Messed with the volume. Siri, play Jesus, what a Savior. Nothing. I went over and I unplugged it. I said, well, maybe there's a problem. I unplugged it. Plugged it back in. I said, Siri, play Jesus, what a Savior. (laughs) I'd like to tell you that a voice came out and said, I'm not Siri, I'm Alexa. (laughs) But it didn't. But I want to tell you something. I thought that Alexa had a problem. But the problem was me. The problem was me. Finally, I said, Alexa, play Jesus, what a Savior. And the light on the top lit up, and the voice started flowing out. The problem wasn't Alexa. The problem was me. You say, I I don't believe in Jesus. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I'm angry at Jesus. Jesus did me wrong. Jesus let me down. Jesus didn't answer my prayer. Jesus didn't fill my teeth with gold. Jesus won't let me do what I want to do or live the way I want to live. The problem's not with Jesus. The problem is with our heart. But our knee-jerk reaction, the last thing we think (laughs) is that there's something wrong with us. We look to other people. We look to this problem or that problem. Leland Riken said, Jesus has done his saving work on the open stage of human history and everyone can see it. All of his words and works are radiant with the revelation of God's glory. The text would tell us as, as we consider what Luke is saying to us and Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, the text would tell us this, that the key to seeing the full radiance of Jesus Christ is in you because the radiance is out there. It's in your Heart. The problem is not the light. The problem is your heart. And if your heart has been transformed, you will see the beauty of Jesus Christ. You will see the desirability of Jesus Christ. His word will resonate with you in a healthy way. But if your heart has not been transformed, you will look at Jesus Christ in all of his radiance and glory and see Beelzebub. Your heart condition determines what you see. When you look at Jesus Christ and what you hear when he proclaims his word. So look inside this morning. And then Jesus makes this profound statement that really needs to be said to the generation, the wicked generation that we live in, the wicked generation that we're a part of, the wicked generation that our wickedness contributes to. He says, be careful, be very careful, don't miss this. If your heart isn't transformed, you may think that you see light. You may think that you are enlightened. You may think that you are woke. You may think that you've gotten it right, but you're really living in darkness. Some of you think your parents are dumb. There's a lot of things you can say, but you can't say words like dumb and stupid anymore, right? He just said the S word, you know. You, you, you look at the, the things they try to teach you, the, the things they try to protect you from, and it could be that you're in darkness. It could be that they're in light. Be careful, don't miss it. If your heart isn't transformed, you may think that you're in the light and you may be listening to everything that the world says, the enlightened world says, but while you think you're in darkness, you may, you think you're in light, you may be in darkness. You may think that you're in light. You may think, you, you may be smack dab in the middle of darkness. You may think you're alive and you're dead. You may think you're woke and you're asleep. You may think you're in light and you're in darkness. Jesus makes that clear here in the text for us this morning. Be, be very careful. I would say this as, as, a, as, a, as a principle. What you see when you look at Jesus is the clearest evidence of the condition of your heart. What you see when you look at Jesus is the clearest evidence of the condition of your heart. When you see, and, and he goes on to say in the text as we look at it, he said, If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So when you see Jesus as the light and your heart has been 
transform. It changes everything about you on the inside. It changes your worldview. It changes your values. It changes your relationships. There is this comprehensive transformation that occurs. Essentially, Jesus is saying, here's the light. It's on a lampstand here to see. I don't have a sign. I don't have anything to add to what you see right now. This is God's best. This is as clear as it's ever going to get. We will never improve on what Jesus has said or on what he has revealed. His way is right and perfect. I'm amazed at our refusal to hear his word. I'm amazed at our refusal to spurn his invitation to love. And many acquiesce to his person but flat out refuse to submit to the clear revelation of his word. So we see responding to illumination. Jesus makes it very clear. This is the light. It's set on a lampstand. Are you going to believe him or are you going to stay in darkness? The third thing we see as Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who are in darkness but think they're in the light, who look at him who was in the light and call him Beelzebul, who look at the full revelation of God and say, give us more, give us more, give us more. We want more. You're not enough, Jesus. You're not enough because we really want to stay in our sin. We don't want to be moved. We don't want to be changed. We see in verse 37, Jesus responding to confrontation. Look at verse 37, if you will. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Those are harsh words. You foolish people, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and withhold everything is clean. And behold, everything is clean for you. Verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. So there's the confrontation with the Pharisee. But then there's the confrontation with the lawyer. It continues. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. <laughs> God, you insulted me. <laughs> I, I mean, how, how audacious can we be? Who, who in the name of God do we think we are? Right? If, 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 I'm, if, I'm, if my heart is corrupt... And Jesus speaks to me, it ought to offend me. It ought to cause me to think. It ought to cause me to say, man, I'm wrong. But they're like, how dare you say these negative things about us? And he said, woe to you lawyers also. Jesus isn't holding back. Jesus isn't trying to win friends and influence people here. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, essentially impossible to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses with your consent with, with, and, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you built their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, you will be, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Verse 53, and he went away from there. The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something. He might say. So the fight is absolutely on. We're going to battle. Jesus, in this confrontation with the Pharisees, drew a line in the sand, and they're on one side saying, We're going to get you. We're going to get you. We're going to get you. And 18 months later, they finally 
got him. Our, our time would not allow us this morning to dig into this confrontation with the Pharisees, but it is, it is quite um, telling of their heart. If, if our heart has been transformed, we will see the radiance of Jesus Christ. We will be in love with him, and it will transform how we relate to other people. It will transform how we see our sin and ourselves. But if not, we'll find ourselves caught up in the trap of religion that only breeds contempt and anger and bitterness. And according to this text, rather than us giving life to other people, we'll be poisoning other people. Right? He said, you guys, you guys are like, a, you're like a grave without a headstone. Well, why do you put a headstone on a grave? Well, you want to remember who died, but you definitely don't want anybody falling into it. Right? I'm not so sure if, if walking across a grave is because of disrespect or it's just some habit that people gathered over time. They're like, dude, if you fall in that grave, there's a body decomposing there and there's no telling what kind of you know, germ warfare could be established. There may be the bubonic plague down there in that hole. Right? And he's saying, hey, y'all are like, y'all, you Pharisees, you know what you're like? You're like, you're like a, a, a grave that's not marked. So people are walking along and they're falling in and they're getting all this rot and contamination and death and germs all over the people that you are influencing that are following you. You're not giving life. You're giving death. Because that's what's coming out of your heart. This was coming out of your heart. I, I want to just kind of kind of wrap up and we'll remember the Lord, remember the gospel through communion. I would ask you this morning, do you hear the word of God? I'm not asking you, do you know the word of God? I'm asking you, do you hear it? In other words, is, is the Word of God sinking into your heart? Because the Word of God, just like Jonah pointed to Jesus and just like Solomon pointed to Jesus, the Scriptures point to Jesus. They point to a, a great king who left heaven and came to earth to establish a great kingdom. And this kingdom is the kindest, the most loving, the most glorious, the most perfect, the most beautiful. This kingdom is so amazing that he says, hey, if you will come and be a part of my kingdom, you will be joint heirs with me in this kingdom. I'm not going to ask you to be a serf. I'm not going to ask you to, to, to just be nobody in the kingdom. I'm going to make you joint heirs. This is a great king. The Word of God points to this great King who is so loving, who is so kind, who is so gracious, who is so glorious, who wants to be in relationship with you and with me. So if you hear the Word of God, you see it pointing to a relationship with this King. And the King says this, See, the king knows that the Pharisees, that the lawyers have gone out and put weights on people. You, you know what the word weight in the passage means? That word weight means the, the amount of cargo that a ship could hold. That's the word there. It, it, it is an unbearable weight. Jesus said, come unto me. Come into my kingdom. All you that labor and are heavy laden, you've got these lawyers putting these weights on you. You've got all these rules, even, even for the 30, 39 rules for all these. I mean, just rule after rule after rule after rule after rule. Then 39 is just one section. That's not all of them. And they were making new rules. Nobody could live up to them. Therefore, everybody's going to hell. Except the Pharisees. They used it to set themselves apart. The word Pharisee means to separate. The Pharisees felt like they were separate from everybody else and better than everybody else, which means, daggone it, they weren't walking in the light. Because if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, so you're not in the light. So you can't be a Pharisee. And if you are, you don't know Jesus. 
This king isn't like that. Come unto me, y'all, ye that are laboring under that yoke of the Pharisees, and rest. Rest. Jesus paid it all. Jesus finished the work. It is done. Rest in him. Do you hear Jesus calling you into relationship with him to rest? Do you hear the word of God? Secondly, do you see the light? Jesus is the light that we so desperately need. He is the light that our heart longs for. Don't believe the lies. The darkness that you are trying to embrace and navigate is not light. Do you see the light? The light is glorious. The radiance of Jesus Christ is glorious. I'm amazed at how we've abandoned in my lifetime every every biblical principle, it seems. Particularly, we've, we've just deconstructed the family. We, we might as well join um, BLM and in their destruction of the nuclear family, right? We, we criticize them, but we're no different. We've deconstructed our families. We, we've deconstructed our families, but here's what I would want you to see. You say you know Jesus. You say you believe in Jesus. You say you've seen the light. Can I ask you something? Do your kids see the light in you? Do they see the light in you? Or do they see some Pharisee that's always wound tight, you know? Always throwing a weight and a burden. I, I think there should be discipline. Some of you would probably disagree with me if you're a contemporary on how to discipline children. I think you're wrong. I think you're violating the Bible. I think you've thrown Scripture to the wind, but I think the key is heart transformation and you being light. So, so do you see the light? The light is glorious. The light is beautiful. Can your children look at you and see the beauty of the light of Jesus Christ? The light is all-encompassing. We walk in the light. The call of Scripture is to come out of darkness into light. And quite frankly, that's probably very rare even in the church. Coming out of darkness into light is scary and it's painful and it can be shame-inducing as you think about it. But walking in the light in confessional community is where the life of Christ is experienced and where freedom is found. Do you see the light? Do you see the beauty of Jesus Christ? Do you see the beauty of his light filling you and flowing out of you? If that's not happening, you're in darkness, you're in death, you're not experiencing life. Now, two things, I'll conclude what I'm going to preach next week. Um, the Pharisees, whenever Jesus confronted them, watch this. The Pharisees, you know what they did? They self-justified. It's the first thing we do when somebody says we're wrong. We self-justify. I know I do. Right? My wife says something to me. I'm like, I made up to bed this morning. I didn't come in drunk last night or any night. You know, I don't beat you. I take the trash out. You know, I took the car and filled it up with gas yesterday and got it washed. Self-justification. We just, we just run to that. And we do that, we do that in the spiritual realm. Jesus is coming to the Pharisees and they're so, I'll tell you what, you're not going to talk about my spirituality. Let me tell you what I do. I tithe and, I, and I, do, I do all the things that are required of me. Don't you? Jesus took him to the woodshed. Self-justification. When you're, when you're confronted by the truth of God's word, when you're confronted by the light that is illuminating, when you're confronted by brothers and sisters in Christ in a community, are you a Pharisee that runs to self-justification? I've already confessed that I am. And then finally, 
you were created to be satisfied in Christ and Christ alone. You can run to darkness. You can, you can drink from that poisoned well. The water's not fresh. Jesus said, I've got some water. You won't believe it if you'll drink it. The darkness, the darkness brings death, but Jesus comes and he proclaims himself. He proclaims the word of God that points to life in him. Jesus proclaims himself as the light of the world. And we were created to be in fellowship with the light. We were created to be satisfied in Christ alone, in his truth, in his light, in his love, in his community. And I would call on you this morning to release all that you cling to right now, right now. It's 11.32 a.m. Right now, release all that you cling to that enslaves you and deceives you. And come to the one who is life, who is light, who is the way, who is the truth, who is the life. He's on the lampstand. Everybody can see him. Everybody can experience him. You don't have to miss it. You don't have to get up out of your seat, walk out of this room, and go back into the darkness and try to find satisfaction because there's none to be had in the darkness. Come to Christ. Run to Christ. Do you hear him proclaim? Do you see the light shining? My prayer for you this morning is that you would See Christ as the light and that it would illuminate the totality of your life and radically transform you from the inside out and that you would be released from the pharisaical bondage that Satan would love to keep you in and that the beauty of the radiance of Christ that you have seen, that you have experienced would now flow out of you when you go to school, when you go to work, when you go home, when you talk to your kids, when you gather in community. Every week at South Point, we take bread and juice. Everybody's familiar with it. But don't rush through it. Don't rush through it. There's a lot of stuff that we've given attention and energy to that we're very concerned about. It could be the placement of your artifacts in your curio cabinet. And you'll walk by and say, who moved? Right? Who moved that porcelain piece of junk. We get all worried about so many things. We stop and notice so many things. Would you just stop for a minute? And would you think of the price that was paid for your sin? Would you think of the love that Jesus Christ has for you this morning? Would you think of the freedom that can be yours if you will rest in him? Would you think of the hope that is mine and yours beyond this life? As we say in the midst of this crooked generation, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus, because our reflection with this juice and this bread is us thinking about the work that Christ has done and who we are in him and all, all that is ours in him who is the light of the world.